AG1 is empowering people to take ownership of their health. Scientifically designed, it's a convenient and comprehensive blend mixing over 70 high-quality ingredients to make a powerfully simple supplement for you. With vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced nutrients and more in a single scoop that just takes seconds to mix each morning. One scoop, once a day, one glass of water, all done in less than a minute. It helps to support your brain, your heart, energy, immune system and your mental health. So what better way to start the new year off? I've been drinking AG1 as part of my morning for a few days now. And I've got to say, it tastes pretty good to me. I can taste the pineapple and vanilla that it's infused with. Part of the changes I wanted to make for myself this year was to improve my wellness routine, both physically and mentally. So aside from stepping up the exercise and eating the right way, I felt that a comprehensive and convenient supplement such as AG1 could only benefit me more to support my baseline nutrition. After all, health is a journey and not a destination. So by drinking AG1, with its list of over 70 ingredients, the rhodiola, magnesium and B vitamins that help support a sustained focus and energy throughout the day, and the nutrient replenishment AG1 provides from the broad spectrum of micronutrients and phytonutrients that it contains to keep the body nourished all day, every day, to name just a couple of benefits, it's an effortless daily habit to drink AG1 assisting you in being a better you. Consistency is key, and as I said, it's designed to be as quick and simple as possible. One scoop, once a day, mixed with water, less than a minute, or you can even mix it up with other things, it's all provided for you in the guide that comes with AG1. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash TC enthusiast. That's drinkag1.com forward slash TC enthusiast. Check it out. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to a new year of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where I will still be coming to you from my corner of North Wales with tales that may shock, horrify, astound, mind-boggle, but which are all very real, and that I've scoured the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland to bring to you. The eye doing so is still myself, Paul, the creator, host, and True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, the most popular member of the Enthusiast team, Pixie, my beloved true crime enthusiast cat, is here with me. He's currently fast asleep in his bed by my feet, almost curled up in half. And completing us are yourselves, the enthusiasts without which I don't do this. The integral cog, you folks are. It is as wonderful as always having you joining me in the peaks today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have... You join us for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well and recovering from those stretched yule holds that happen this time of year. I should point out too that I'm not trying to be New Year's disgusting there. It simply means that extra notch on the belt that you use or you make because you've overindulged over the festivities. So the tale I bring you this time around then, for the first one of 2024, 
wasn't actually the tail I'd planned to. Through one thing or another, I've had to rejig the running order for the end of Series 8, so I have a couple more tales to come before a short break, and then boom, back on with Series 9. That's why I haven't done the traditional Series in Review content yet, but rest assured that'll come, and I'll be getting the Don't Have Nightmares bit in for sure. It is equally a chilling and horrific tale this one though, as I'm sure you'll come to see, and it involves those actions that are oh so common we hear about them so often in the true crime genre, and I'm sure that many of you have experienced similar sentiments, though hopefully not to the extreme level I'll describe here. When a person just cannot accept that a relationship has come to an end, and the things that they do because they can't. And sometimes, of course, a person takes things to another level completely. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for an episode I've entitled A Job Well Done. The terrible screams of her mother and brother will live with Amy Cox forevermore, but they're also what saved her life. As her mother, Sally Cox, was being butchered to death downstairs, her agonising howls woke the teenager and warned her that she would very likely be next, and then her sister Katie. Both Amy and Katie are alive today with mere thanks to their brave brother and an instinct that told Amy to leap out of an upstairs window. But the scars and the horror of that event live on. They're never to be forgotten for the two girls. We head back to 2010 and to the market town of Banbury in Oxfordshire for our tale this time around. Banbury notable as the birthplace of the nursery rhyme, Ride a Cock Horse. Legendary kids news presenter John Craven lives there, and the author of A Clockwork Orange, Anthony Burgess, taught at the school there for several years. Scraping the barrel a bit for stats this time around, folks. Back in 2010, a house on Banbury's Mould Crescent, number 69, was home to then 19-year-old Amy, her then 13-year-old sister Katie, and their mother, 43-year-old Sally Cox. Sally, originally from Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire, had back in 1986 married Kevin Faulkner, going on to have three children with him and living in the Larches in Wall. By the early 2000s, however, the couple had split, and by only a couple of years afterwards, both had remarried, Kevin to a woman named Michelle, moving down to Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire, and Sally to a man named Anthony Cox in July 2004, moving down to the town of Western Supermare in Somerset. However, this marriage was not to last long, and by the end of 2009, Sally and Anthony had split, and Sally and the two girls had moved once again, this time to Banbury with then 20-year-old Martin, Sally's eldest child, opting to live with his father and stepmother, in Milton Keynes. There was no animosity behind this decision, or Sally and Anthony's split, 
By all accounts, it was just that their relationship had run its course. Now, life as a single parent can be hard, of course it can, though Sally did work at the local DHL warehouse sorting parcels, and did her absolute best for her children. Amy recalls, Mum always did her best to make us happy. There were times we were really poor and she would go without food so we could eat. She was lovely and always put us first. Things were stable. Mum would come home after work and have a fish pie while she watched Emmerdale and we danced to her favourite Riverdance CDs while we cooked dinner. Now, Early in 2010, Amy found out her mother had started exploring online dating. She said, There was something in Mum that always needed a man's love. Now that is one account of how Sally met 43-year-old Michael Kelly, a father of two, former line dancing coach and car plant worker from Swindon in Wiltshire, who had only very recently separated from his wife. The other account given how the two met is that the two began chatting randomly on Facebook, and after chatting for a while, eventually arranged a date. Amy continued. She didn't like him at first. When she tried to end it after a few dates, Michael showed up outside the house and wouldn't leave. He'd already told Mum he loved her, and that freaked her out. But she gave him another chance. After two months, he moved in with us, and soon after, we moved to the house where it happened. I thought he was a total creep. He had an odd manner and spoke with a weird pretend posh accent. He was absolutely obsessed with mum. Sally's younger sister, Joanne, shared her niece's feelings. She described later. I didn't like him. Before I even met him, I spoke to him on Facebook and thought he was a bit strange. He was always right behind my sister, all the time following her. It was like he was obsessed with her. So, Michael Kelly had rapidly moved in with them when the family moved once again, this time to number 69 Mould Crescent, which is full on enough for any relationship. You'd be like, whoa, slow down there, Trigger. By this time, he'd already posted all over his Facebook page that he and Sally were in a relationship. And after publicly announcing this, his obsession with her began to show when he posted... I'm so much in love, it's sickening. Smiley face, love you, darling. The following day, he wrote, Really love you lot so much, in brackets, makes my chest hurt. He then went on to say, So proud to say I'm with this family, and I love them more and more each day. However, it wasn't all happy families as such statuses would suggest. It had been less than a year since Kelly had walked out on his estranged wife Suzanne and their two children, then eight-year-old Jacob and six-year-old Benjamin, and he had not contributed any child maintenance for the two boys whatsoever since. Strange he should turn his back, especially upon his children really, for Kelly and Suzanne, both then living in Leiden, near Swindon, described son Jacob as their miracle baby with Suzanne saying back in June 2002 when he was born, he is the answer to our dreams and he is perfect in every way. 
They'd been together for 14 years by that point and conceiving was difficult for them. Suzanne had already suffered two ectopic pregnancies and after a 14 year £4,500 IVF battle to conceive at a private clinic in Essex. Suzanne gave birth by emergency caesarean section at the former Princess Margaret Hospital in Berkshire in June 2002. Kelly had been upset that the pair could not be treated on the NHS as restrictions in Wiltshire at the time meant that only women aged 35 when referred by their doctor were eligible. Speaking in 2002, Kelly said, There are so many different restrictions about who can be treated that most people are ruled out. Saying that IVF is available on the NHS is a joke. Two years after Jacob, the couple had another child, Benjamin, them thinking that miracles do happen more than once, and for a couple of years, things were fine. You'd think after such a battle... You would do anything for the family you fought so desperately to have, wouldn't you? But by 2008, the marriage was crumbling. Suzanne Kelly recalled later, in December 2010. I haven't seen him since April. We split up last Christmas. I just got fed up and told him to leave. I didn't want him here anymore. Michael was not a very hard worker. He was into computers. Every evening he was home, he spent his time on Facebook and playing computer games. All the love had gone out of our marriage. I don't know when the affair started with her. It's very likely that Kelly was at this time using dating apps, or certainly talking to other women on Facebook, which would have been when he first met Sally. By all accounts, he did leave when Suzanne told him to, after 22 years together, and had gone to stay with his mother in Stratton St. Margaret, near Swindon, though not without incident. Victor Cox, Mr. Kelly's father-in-law, told the Sun newspaper later, He certainly got a very quick temper. He was breaking things up when he left. Now shortly afterwards, he'd begun his relationship with Sally, gone full-on straight away, which freaked her out, and she'd ended their relationship, though a week or so later gave him another chance when he was all pleading and apologetic, offering to change, and even allowed him to move in with her and her daughters, which Sally would soon come to regret, because within the confines of their home is where Kelly's flawed personality resurfaced, Amy recalled. He'd cry at the drop of a hat, if mum got annoyed, if she didn't want to cuddle, if one of us kids got upset. One time he burst into tears, wailing that mum was refusing to sleep with him. He had a collection of horror books and ones about serial killers, and developed a deep fascination with horror films, but would start laughing at the most violent parts. At the same time, he became so possessive that if we were out and she needed the toilet, he followed her and waited outside for her. Then Michael started working at DHL, and if mum took a sick day, he would stay home too. He even insisted they have their breaks there at the same time. But he was never violent. If anything, he seemed soppy. An unnamed friend of Sally's furthered. 
Michael got a job with an agency and started at DHL on the same shift as Sally. Whenever they had a tea break, he would always be next to her. But she didn't look like she wanted him there. It was too much. I talked to Michael and he seemed like he desperately wanted to be liked. To be honest, everyone thought he was a bit strange and gave him a wide berth. Reportedly, a jealous Kelly would allegedly stare out any man who dared speak to Sally. Her friend continued. He walked around the place like he owned it. One day, a few weeks ago, she didn't turn up, and on the same day he rang in and said he was taking another job elsewhere. It was a strange coincidence. Now, this doesn't sound healthy or particularly happy, does it? But to Kelly, it was idyllic, and he was perfectly content with how things were. His state of contentment is reflected best by pictures of a day trip to Blackpool in October 2010, which were posted on the web by Amy's then-boyfriend, Lee Mehmet. Before the trip, Kelly wrote on Facebook, Counting down the days till we go away, anticipating a wonderful time ahead. It's going to be fantastic. And to the naked eye, it would appear a fantastic time. Kelly was pictured laughing and joking with the family, posing for photographs on a log flume ride at the resort's Pleasure Beach with Amy and Katie, posing next to them in seats in the shape of monsters, and even in a jokey mock wedding photo on one knee in a top hat while Sally wears a veil and clutches a bouquet of flowers at the little white chapel there. But a single nice day trip to Blackpool can't salvage an unhealthy relationship. And only shortly after the Blackpool trip, Sally decided in November 2010 that they should split for good, her having had enough of his smothering ways, and asked Kelly to leave their home. So he went to live with his mother in Hatch Road in Stratton St. Margaret, near Swindon. Convinced they would reunite, he did so amicably at first, but then began to post angry messages on Facebook about Sally. Amy recalled, He continued to text mum incessantly, and she got terrified. One night, Michael wouldn't stop calling. I got on the phone and shouted at him to leave her alone, and he called me a little bitch. Martin told him off as well, but the texts kept coming. Kelly is said to have begged Sally to take him back, but after such displays, she no longer wanted anything to do with him and was actually petrified of what he might do. A close friend, who worked with Sally at the DHL packing plant, revealed in December 2010. She was absolutely petrified of Michael. Sally finished the relationship with him because he was becoming over-possessive and jealous. He was weird and wouldn't let Sally go anywhere without him. She told friends she was going to call the police because he was harassing her. She told people he couldn't accept the relationship had ended and she was scared of what he might do. He was sending Sally loads of text messages begging her to take him back. It seemed like he was warning her not to go off with anyone else. The last time I saw Sally was Friday. She seemed really troubled and looked pale. I asked her if she was okay and she said she had personal issues. Everyone here was glad she'd finished with Michael. He wasn't good for her, and she was obviously very unhappy with him. 
Now, before things had soured between them, Kelly had wrote on his Facebook page that the relationship with Sally was the best thing that has ever happened to me. But despite this apparent devotion to Sally, if that's what you want to call it, online addict Kelly was constantly trawling the net for more women during and after their relationship. He would chat up other women on the social networking site while he was still with Sally, publicly admitted liking hot sexy stories, and on an adult shop and summers page, he wrote his ultimate sexual fantasies involved ladies dressed as Catwoman, school teachers, and nurses. One innocent Facebook user Kelly targeted, Kerry Brown, said in December 2010, He added me on Facebook a few weeks ago and mailed me saying he needed a friend. He never mentioned Sally once and called me young lady in the messages he sent. I'm in shock and don't want anything to do with him again. He seemed to be doing the strangest of things online, posting almost for the sake of posting as so many people do with their bloody tea or having a bath or something crap like that. For Kelly had even messaged that year's X Factor winner, Matt Cardle, on Twitter, on then Twitter, not this X shit, saying that he was sure he would win. He wrote, I am not a big follower of X Factor, but you deserve this more than anyone. It is your destiny. Good luck, brackets, not that you'll need it. Takes all sorts, doesn't it? Random. And what he would do more than anything, spurned, is post Venom about Sally and her family. He even online falsely accused her son, Martin Faulkner, of being a drug dealer, making sure that his employers were notified of this. Each time, they would tell him to leave Sally and them alone, and each time, Kelly would ignore this, too committed to stop. After a brief gap where the family considered he must have got the message finally, their hearts sank when his messages to Sally resumed with a bitter tone, as did his Facebook statuses, one stating, From here on in, if someone wants me, then they better bloody prove it. In a series of exchanges with his friend Donna Gregory from then until December the 13th, Kelly talked about finding someone who would treat him better than recently. He joined an online dating site and was warned by friends to watch out for weirdos, prompting him to reply, Hey, that would be me, lol. On December the 5th, he updated his status on Facebook, saying, This morning deleted all traces of a certain person and co. It's as if they did not exist, just a bad figment of the imagination. Peace finally smiley face. In the days following this, Kelly complained on his Facebook profile that he was suffering from insomnia. He had posted something else in a message to a friend the previous day, but on Thursday the 9th of December, he wrote, Wish to Christ I could get to sleep, but can't. Thoughts are tearing me apart and gotta be up at 2.45. Insomnia could be the death of me. Please, brain, Go to sleep. On Friday, December the 10th, he posted the message. This heart is searching for another that's true. So be careful what you wish for. 
it might just be you. Now, on the evening of the 12th of December, Sally, Amy and Martin were out at a nightclub together and Kelly had repeatedly telephoned Sally until Martin and Amy's then-boyfriend Lee stepped in and told the spurned Kelly that she wanted nothing more to do with him, threatening him with violence if he didn't desist in contacting her. That evening, Kelly wrote on his Facebook page, Tonight has changed my life forever. You know who you are. Thanks, dear. He also texted Sally, I've got one more surprise for you. Very early the following morning, Monday the 13th of December, Kelly, who by this time was working for FedEx, as I said, having left DHL, called and told them that he wouldn't be in to work that day as his mother had had a stroke. He then grabbed two items he'd purchased a few days before, carried them outside to his car, and set off to drive the 40 miles around to Sally's home. It was still dark by the time he arrived, and after pulling on the wicked-looking horror mask he had purchased only some days before, there is an image of it up in the show's Instagram page for you to see for yourself, he grabbed the other item he'd purchased the same day from DIY store Wix and waited. Knowing Sally was an early riser, he saw the back kitchen light of number 69 go on, and a short time later, Sally came outside to put the bins out. Making his way stealthily towards the back door, he then waited and followed Sally inside as she made her way back in, causing her to freeze and then to scream. Even underneath the horrific looking mask, Sally knew exactly who the figure stood in front of her was, and she screamed firstly when she saw what he held in his hand, and then more so as he began to savagely attack her with it. It was a viciously sharp looking builder's axe. Kelly was to strike the 43-year-old mother of two at least 14 savage blows to the head, leaving a sprawled half underneath the kitchen table, killed almost instantly, and the kitchen looking like an abattoir. He then turned his attention to Mrs Cox's children, all of whom had been sleeping upstairs at the time. Amy recalled how at 6.30am that Monday morning in December, she was woken up by screams, which were followed by loud thuds, saying, I walked out onto the landing and knew something terrible had happened. I went into Martin's room to wake him up, and within seconds, we knew what had happened to Mum. A man burst into the room in this horrible mask and holding what I thought was a hammer. I knew it was Michael right away. He burst into the room and laughed. He actually cocked his head back and let out this sickening chuckle, like something from a horror film. He had just killed my mum. Martin was only wearing boxers, but he stepped in front of me to protect me, and then something inside me said, jump, so I ran to the window and leapt out. I hit my head and blacked out for a few seconds, but when I came to, I could hear Martin's screams. It's a sound I still remember clearly. I ran across the street to a neighbour's, shouting that Michael was going to kill my family. I collapsed on the floor in their hallway, 
struggling to remain conscious. I was shaking and covered in blood from where I cut my head. I couldn't think. Katie had by this time fled across to the sanctuary of the neighbour's house too. Semi-conscious, Amy then watched from the neighbour's window as Kelly walked out of the house in Banbury, having taken off his mask and driven off. She continued. It felt like forever before the police came. Something inside me knew my mum was dead. But I still hoped Martin might make it. Martin saved my life. He gave me time to escape. He was one of my best friends and had been so protective since we were little. I also think Mum tried to scream for as long as she could to warn us what was coming. Shortly afterwards, from the effects of banging her head in the fall from the bedroom window, Amy fell into a coma with a blood clot to her brain and two damaged bones in her neck. She was taken to Oxford's John Radcliffe Hospital, where by the following day, she was said to have been in a serious but stable condition. Her boyfriend Lee Mehmet wrote on Facebook that yesterday had been the hardest, longest day of my life. She's a lovely girl. No one deserves this, least of all her. Everyone is devastated by this. He'd earlier written on Facebook, She's in a coma at the moment, so we'll know more when she's awake. Now thankfully Amy was to make a complete recovery, though she was to spend 11 days in hospital. Two days after the killing, her dad Kevin Faulkner visited her in Oxford's John Radcliffe Hospital, and she recalled later. He asked me if I knew what happened, that both Mum and Martin were dead. I just said I did. I didn't want to talk about it. I couldn't. I just wanted to get out of there. Horrific beyond belief already that, isn't it? Tragically, it emerged that Martin was only passing through Banbury on a brief visit to Sally's home when tragedy had struck. He had spent the previous evening at the home of his girlfriend, Melissa Foster. Sadly, Martin wasn't to make it at all either. Kelly had attacked him with even more savagery, striking him some 22 times in all. Horrifically, it also appeared that he had tortured him with the axe in between inflicting catastrophic wounds upon him in an attack that was believed to have lasted almost 10 minutes in total. 10 minutes. Police were convinced that had Amy and Katie not managed to flee, Kelly would have killed both of them too. Sally and Martin were both pronounced dead at the scene. The blood-soaked bodies found at 6.45am. A later post-mortem examination on Sally revealed she had died of multiple head injuries caused by a heavy-bladed instrument, while the post-mortem on the body of Martin Faulkner found he had died as a result of multiple sharp weapon injuries. Detectives said the mayhem that was apparent in the property upon their arrival showed that both Sally and Martin must have put up a fierce struggle as they were being hacked to death, a police source said. As you can appreciate, officers went to the address and were faced with a horrific scene. There were two people obviously dead or very close to death at the scene. It was an awful scene inside that property. The ferociousness and brutality left everyone there in a state of shock. 
the trail of blood went through the house, from the bedroom where it had happened and down the hallway. There was blood absolutely everywhere. You could tell by the blood on the floor and walls that they'd tried to escape. They'd obviously fought tooth and nail for their lives and tried to crawl to safety. The anger in the house still lingered in the air. The neighbours were awoken by terrible screams in the early hours of the morning. No one could have not heard it. Many of the officers have never witnessed anything quite as grim as this. It will stay with them for a long time. You can but imagine, can't you? As that Monday progressed, more than 40 police officers were working on the launched murder inquiry. Ten uniformed officers remained at the scene, along with five detectives and a number of forensic investigators. The end terrace house was cordoned off, a long stretch of the road was closed to traffic and pedestrians in both directions, and police officers were also present at a second house in Mould Crescent, opposite number 69, the scene of the attack, the neighbour's house where Amy and Katie had fled to. Detective Inspector Steve Duffy of Thames Valley Police told the media later that day, Even the most hardened officers, some of whom with over 20 years experience, were left distraught by what they saw. This is a traumatic and horrific incident. There is background to this, it is not a random attack. It is tragic, but the wider community are not at risk. We cannot confirm the exact nature of the injuries, but we can confirm that some kind of weapon was used during the attack. All I can confirm is that their injuries are consistent with blunt trauma, and I can't say if an axe was used, but a firearm was not used. Detective Inspector Duffy said police had received no previous calls to the address regarding domestic incidents in the year that the family had lived in the house for, and that the two survivors would be interviewed later that day if they were both up to it. Mr Duffy said, Of course, they've obviously been through a horrific ordeal this morning. Now a few hours after the bodies were found in Mould Crescent, Kelly was arrested by armed police at an address in Swindon he'd been lodging at for the previous two nights. One neighbour, who didn't want to be named, said, I went out about 11.10am, and as I left, I saw about eight armed policemen with guns, flak jackets, helmets, the lot, just outside the house. One of the policemen was in the right upstairs window, as you look at the house, shouting down to those below. I came back about 15 minutes later, but they looked like they'd been stood down by then. I heard one say there was one person in the house, who must be the one they arrested, and three rooms were being rented out. When I came back at 4pm, the armed police had gone, but there were crime scene investigators there. This is a really nice area, you don't get rowdy behaviour, no hassle or anything. When I saw the police, I thought it might be a drugs raid or a terrorist. You don't think it's going to be murder. You just don't know people. You think you know your neighbours, but you just don't. It's not safe anywhere anymore. You don't feel like it is anyway. Michael Kelly was charged on the 14th of December with the murders of Sally Ann Cox and Martin Faulkner. And in addition to the two murder charges... Kelly also faced a single charge of assault and one charge of causing grievous bodily harm. He spoke only to confirm his name 
age and address as Hatch Road, Stratton St Margaret, Swindon, Wiltshire, when he appeared for the remand hearing at Banbury Magistrates Court the following day, Wednesday the 15th of December. Presiding Magistrate Lynn Dowler remanded him in custody to appear before Oxford Crown Court the following day, where he was further remanded in custody, awaiting trial. With Kelly arrested, neighbours told of their shock at the murders. Taxi driver Zach Mohammed said, I gave her lifts to work. I'm shocked you don't expect this. She'd split with her boyfriend about a month ago. She mentioned he'd moved back to Swindon. They'd only been here five or six months, I think. They seemed really nice, quite chatty and friendly. She didn't go out much, but said it was because of the cold weather. She worked as a packer in a warehouse. I only gave her a lift to work a week and a half ago. Another resident, who didn't want to be named, added, All we've heard is that there's been a murder and that an axe was involved. I know the house, but I don't know who lives there. We can't get up there because the police are blocking it. They've stopped the cars going up and down. It's a very quiet street, really. I never hear of any trouble here. The landlord of the house where Kelly had been lodging for two nights before the murders said, I was the last person to speak to him before he did it, and the first person to speak to him after it happened. I couldn't believe it. He was fine when I spoke to him. He seemed quite chirpy and talkative. He talked about lots of things. His favourite music, what pasties he had in the fridge. It's just unbelievable. He didn't seem affected by it at all. You'd think it would disturb him, but he wrote on Facebook, a job well done, so he must have been pleased with himself. Oh yes, after committing the most brutal murders you can imagine, as I've described in such horrific fashion, Michael Kelly had returned back to his lodgings and acted as though nothing had happened. The morning before his arrest, he had posted the following as a Facebook status update. What a lovely job, a job well done. Still, someone's got to do it. Minutes later, he added, Good morning all in FB land, how are we all? Unbelievable, eh? The day he'd bought the axe and the mask, the 8th of December, he had also told a friend on Facebook. A part of me wants to see us suffer so much. Am I screwed up inside? I think I really must be. I reckon you're right there, fella. Kelly's estranged wife, Suzanne, told the Mirror newspaper as she choked back tears. I wouldn't have thought he was capable of this. I would have said he was all mouth and no action. If he did it, then he's just bloody flipped. He's not normally a violent man. I don't think you ever see that coming, do you? I can't really think anything at the moment. I haven't got my head round it. But I'll never be able to forgive him for what he's put his own children through. It's the kids that I'm most worried about. They've just gone really quiet today. I thought Michael had already been through a midlife crisis. He had that when we had the kids. What's happened really hasn't sunk in yet. Sally and Martin were laid to rest in a joint funeral on the 12th of February 2011, attended by dozens of their family and friends. At Oxford Crown Court on Monday the 11th of April 2011, 
Michael Kelly pleaded guilty to two counts of murder and two of causing grievous bodily harm with intent. Benjamin Aina Casey, prosecuting, told the court how the defendant had first met 43-year-old Sally Cox in January 2010 through a dating website, and that Kelly had moved into a three-bedroomed home with her, ch- with her and her children in Mould Crescent in Banbury a month later. However, as their relationship progressed, Kelly displayed an obsession with Mrs. Cox, even standing outside the door while she went to the toilet and compulsively looking over her shoulder if she went onto the computer. He added, He was particularly jealous of her children and discouraged her friends from visiting her by being insulting and rude to them. Following their split in November 2010, Mr. Aina told the court how Kelly had moved back to his mother's but began calling, texting, and writing abusive Facebook posts about Sally and her family, to the point where Sally was even terrified in the sanctuary of her own home, saying, Sally felt threatened and scared of Mr. Kelly. She felt he was constantly watching her, and she slept with a knife under her pillow because she was frightened he would come back. He then described the row on the night before the murders, saying, It may be this was the catalyst for what happened the next day. He'd purchased a builder's hatchet from the Wix DIY store in Swindon and was captured on CCTV doing so. He then described the horrific attack early that Monday morning in full, as I brought to you before, and explaining how Amy and Katie had awoken to the sound of it, said Mr. Rayner. The screams went on for three minutes, Then there was a thud which sounded like someone had fallen to the floor. Slowly, Amy left the room to see what was going on. She heard movement downstairs. She was frightened and went into Martin's room to wake him up. As he was getting out of bed, the door opened and Amy saw a man in a mask who she instantly recognised as Mr. Kelly. He explained how Kelly was brandishing the builder's axe and then rushed towards Martin Faulkner as he stood between Kelly and his sister. Amy then climbed out the bedroom window, jumping to the ground. Mr. Rayner continued. She was aware that her brother was being attacked. She could hear him shouting, which lasted for five to ten minutes. Injured, she ran to a neighbour and alerted them as to what was going on. The neighbour called the police. Nick Rhodes Casey, defending, could offer nothing in mitigation, but told the court that father of two Kelly had no previous convictions and had been married for 20 years. He said, He wants this court to know he is not some monster, even though the offence itself is ghastly to contemplate. So he just periodically was one then, eh? For what else can you describe someone responsible for such horror as I've described. Presiding Mr Justice Saunders then jailed Kelly for the standard term of life imprisonment, telling him that he must serve a minimum of 30 years before he could ever be considered for parole. The court saw Kelly say nothing in response, except to start to cry before he was taken down to begin his sentence. Speaking following the case, Detective Chief Inspector Peter Vigors of Thames Valley Police said, 
Sally Cox and her 22-year-old son Martin Faulkner were murdered by Michael Kelly in their home in Banbury on December the 13th last year. Kelly has pleaded guilty today and I welcome the sentences handed down. These brutal murders were carried out by Kelly with an axe whilst he was wearing a gruesome horror mask. Sally Cox and Kelly moved into the house together and he had been accepted by her children in February last year. They separated in November 2010 and it would appear that Kelly was unable to deal with this separation. Our sympathies go to the family and I very much hope that what has happened here today may, in some small way, allow them to begin the next stage of their lives. In a statement issued through police after the case, relatives of the victims said it was a sad and meaningless loss. Continuing, Today has seen justice done for Sally and Martin, although no sentence will ever be long enough for the hurt and suffering that he has put the family through, not least of all the suffering that Sally and Martin went through. The family would also like to thank Thames Valley Police for their help and support through this sad and meaningless loss. Kelly's estranged wife Suzanne, still of Leiden, said that no punishment would ever be great enough for the father of her two young children, saying, I've heard the verdict, and to be honest, he could have got longer. As far as I'm concerned, life means life. He took their lives so he should now be given his life. Sally's younger sister, Joanne Fletcher, who lives in York, said Kelly had totally ruined her life forever and had taken two very special people from her. She recalled the agony of having to break the news to her parents. She said, This has completely changed me as a person. I'm no longer the outgoing happy person I was before. I hate being on my own and just do not feel safe most days. I want to cry all day. I still find it hard to believe they are no longer here. Brandon Kelly, a scumbag. She said he had torn the family's world apart and destroyed all her happy memories of her sister and nephew. She wished her sister had opened up about her problems with Kelly, adding, I was very close to my sister and nephew and he's taken them away from me all because he couldn't handle a breakup. I would give anything just to tell them both I love them one more time, or just to hear them laugh or see them smiling, but I will never see them again, and this is what's tearing me apart. I miss them both so much. That evil man has turned mine and my family's world upside down, and our lives will never, ever be the same again. What kind of person would do this to another human being? Following Kelly's imprisonment, extracts from letters and a prison journal he had kept in the months following his arrest and ahead of his trial were released to a national newspaper. Somewhat disjointed and rambling, they speak very little of his actual prison routine, just mere snippets about how he's suffering from tension headaches, how he's let go of his appearance, classes he's taken and how he was working for 90p a day making breakfast packs for the whole prison. The extracts that were released do, however, have a common thread running through them, that his level of obsession with Sally Cox had in no way waned. He hadn't washed the woman out of his hair, for want of a better word, following annihilating her and her son. If anything, he still seemed besotted with her. 
The extracts released read as follows. Thursday the 10th of February 2011, coincidentally two days before Sally and Martin's joint funeral. Underneath a sketch of a mock-up of Sally's headstone, a drawing of an angel with a rose for a head, which struck me as looking semi-pornographic, the writing on it depicting, You'll be with me for all time, my darling. You'll always be in my heart. It was followed by the following entry. Good morning, my darling. I hope you and Martin are being well looked after up there. They better, otherwise they'll have me to answer to. Joe Public haven't the faintest clue about the real us. If they did, their hearts would have melted. I know that when we parted, all the angels in heaven wept unashamedly, much as they did the morning you and Martin joined them up there. And me, I'm still crying because of this, and it may be a very long time before I stop, if I ever can. When you love somebody that much, the loss is probably the most painful of experiences that you could ever be put through so I know exactly how the girls and the family must be feeling, because it's still tearing me apart even now, 88 days after we parted. If I live to be a 100, I will still be crying over you, my dearest darling. This is how much you mean to me. My sorrow is even deeper knowing that I was to blame. I feel so bloody terrible for what I did. I wish with all my heart that in time, you and Martin can forgive me. Another reads, On that Monday in November when you told me to leave, I was not able to think straight anymore. Devastation is an understatement as to how I felt about it. Another entry reads, For the rest of my life, I will have remorse about what I've done. I deserve all the terrible suffering that I'm going through. I cannot figure out why, so how can I explain this to anyone else? I deprive the world of a heavenly being. I should be denied rights of entry through the gates of heaven. I surely cannot have blood flowing through my veins, only pure venom. I am ashamed and horrified at what I've done. How can someone who would love these people so much turn around and do this? Kelly had also written, at 7pm on Monday the 11th of April, mere hours after receiving 30 years imprisonment. I sincerely hope that all the friends and family are happy with the result. I know that I may well never see the light of day again, but that doesn't matter too much. I've done the honourable thing, he means pleaded guilty. And now, perhaps with time, I may begin to forgive myself. Something else, eh? Notice the theme, how it's always about himself. Everything comes back around to himself. Sally's sister Joanne Fletcher told the Oxford Mail newspaper how upset she was that Kelly's letters had been given to a national newspaper and that the only news the family wanted to hear about him was about his death, saying I don't understand how he can write about my sister and talk to her the way he does after what he did. He's totally obsessed with her, still. I just don't understand it. I don't know if he's really remorseful for what he's done, like he makes out. It makes me feel angry because he's saying he still loves my sister and still talks to her at night. How dare he do that after what he did? He can ask forgiveness for as long as he likes, but none of my family is ever going to forgive him for what he's done. I hope he rots in hell and that he never comes out of prison. 
He has taken my sister and my nephew, and they hate him. Her sister-in-law, Yvonne Molson, with Sally's devastated parents, added, It has left the whole family devastated. We wish it would all stop. Every time you think you can take one step forward and smile for a day, something like this pops up and you go ten steps back. He's not sorry. He's only sorry he's in prison. The way he starts off the letter, it's just sickening. He talks as if it wasn't him. Martin and Sally would be here today about to celebrate the first birthday of my son if it wasn't for him. About a year after the killings, Kelly's mother Margaret had broken her silence. The mum of four, who'd attended the sentencing of her son at Oxford Crown Court the previous April, told how she recalled that her son had been struggling to come to terms with the crumbling of his relationship with Sally a few weeks previous to the murders, but was not showing any signs of erratic behaviour, and had even agreed to meet her in Swindon Town Centre on the day of the killings. Miss Kelly said at the time, The day I found out is just like one big haze. I remember seeing the story in the papers the next day, and looking at the picture of Michael, and not being able to put the pieces together. The man looking up at me from the paper didn't seem like my son. He just couldn't seem to accept that she didn't want him. Most people would just pick up the pieces and move on, but he couldn't do that. He must have gone completely berserk to do that, and what I can never understand is how on earth he was able to drive back to Swindon from Banbury, having killed two people. How could you drive after that? I've asked him that very question, and he just looked at me blankly and said, I don't know, everything was just red, everything was red. I'd love to talk to the victim's family, but I don't think they would ever want to hear from me. They may, in years to come, but it's too raw right now, just coming up for a year. I wish I could bring Sally and Martin back, but it just isn't going to happen. Michael wishes it had never happened, but it's just too late for that. It's so sad. Reference the letters that were released, Margaret said. He said he's looking for answers. So am I. When he says, how can I tell anybody else? What he really meant to say was, how can he tell anyone else when he doesn't know himself? He was really, really jealous. He was so jealous, he couldn't think straight anymore. There is quite a lot of repetition in the letters, and that runs all the way through. I'm trying to index them and pick out the important points. I try to read them through, and then I just can't anymore, and I have to have a few days off. It gets heavy. I'm doing this for my own peace of mind, one way or another, and I think I owe it to my family, knowing none of this is their fault. It's torn us apart, really. It plays on my mind all the time. It's been a year of hell. They're often the forgotten victims in each of these cases, the family of those responsible, aren't they? Despite his actions, Miss Kelly told how she still spoke to his son on a daily basis and visited him whenever she could, but was in complete agreement with the sentence he was given, saying, He did what he did, and he should pay his debt to society. But when you have kids, you realise that you can never disown them. He's done what he's done, and he must face up to that. But, at the end of the day, I'm still his mother, and that's never going to change. 
You always blame yourself in a way. You ask yourself, did I make a mistake bringing him up? But he was brought up just like his brothers and sister. People tell me I've been really strong, but you just can't give up. It isn't fair on my other children. I can only imagine how Sally's family must feel if there was anything I could do to bring Sally and Martin back, but there isn't. By two years later, the pain and grief were still as raw as ever, but Amy was trying to rebuild her life and was finally ready to talk about her ordeal for the first time. She told the Sunday People newspaper how she'd moved away to live with her grandparents, Sue and Roger Fletcher, in Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire, how she'd landed a job in mother care, and how she'd begun dating again, following her relationship with Lee coming to an end. Amy continued. That first Christmas without them was a complete blur. I didn't cry. I couldn't for months. I couldn't work. I didn't want to see any of my friends. I was even terrified to go to the hairdressers because the sight of scissors brought it all back. People around me were saying I needed to talk about it, but I felt it was easier to stay locked in my own little world. My whole life had been turned upside down in the most horrific way. I felt so much guilt. Why did I escape? What if I'd done something different? It's only recently I've been able to deal with my emotions, but in a way, it makes me vulnerable. I just know my mum and Martin would have wanted me to be happy, so that's my only goal in life now. I can't forget the sound of mum screaming, then seeing Michael in the mask. He still haunts my nightmares. I still sleep with my bedroom door locked, and if I'm in a room with a door, I will try to sit as far away as possible. But I won't let him take my life as well. I don't think a life sentence is enough for him, but that's the best you get in this country without the death penalty. I hope he dies in prison. He didn't get me then, and he won't get me now. I'm determined to live life to the full from now on, and do Mum and Martin proud. Poor woman, you can't even imagine, can you? I always marvel that anyone can come back to any semblance of normality and life from such horror. And I really hope Amy was able to carry this positive attitude on, and still does today. Now there's no mention of Katie throughout researching, but the same sentiment extends to her also completely does. In May 2019, it was reported that Kelly's estranged wife Suzanne still lived with their children, Jacob and Ben, in the three-bedroom home in Leiden, near Swindon, that she'd bought with Kelly back in 1995. However, at the time she was more than £12,000 in arrears to the Royal Bank of Scotland, still owing £96,000 on the property, and claimed she was powerless to stave off repossession because she couldn't access funds to remortgage her home because Kelly's name was still on the property deeds of their former family home. Suzanne also discovered he had taken out an extra £25,000 mortgage without her knowledge. The bank wanted to sell the house, then worth £210,000. But because Kelly, who had walked out almost a year before the killings, would not agree to a divorce from her, Suzanne had begun divorce proceedings after the killings, but for reasons undisclosed had not seen them through, she couldn't sell it, remortgage it, or organise any equity release. A bank source said they were 
working with the customer to reach a resolution and would only repossess after other options have been exhausted. Suzanne said, I've explained to the bank my situation, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. They're not interested and want their money back. I can't believe after all these years, he is still ruining my life. I just want to be free of him. I don't think Michael Kelly has it in him to do the decent thing at all, as anyone with a shred of decency would in such a situation to help keep a roof over your children's heads. In fact, I don't believe he can see past himself at all. Now incidentally, Kelly's horrific actions were the second of such horror to take place in the same street within a couple of years. The street where the double murder took place, Mould Crescent, was the scene two years before of another brutal killing in which on Monday the 17th of September 2008, a 30-year-old woman, Sugra Rani, was stabbed some 16 times in a frenzied attack and then battered to death with a chapati pan before her body was wrapped in a duvet and hidden behind a settee. Her 35-year-old husband, Mohammed Rashid, then dropped off his children at his father's house and walked into Banbury Police Station and told officers that a woman's body was at his home, saying, This is the key to my house. Go in and you'll find my wife dead in there. I've killed her. Charged with murder, Rashid appeared before Banbury magistrates the following day, who were told that the couple, originally from Pakistan, were first cousins who had married about 12 years previously in an arranged marriage, but that the marriage had become strained due to financial problems, and that the attack was triggered after Rashid discovered Sugra had embarked on an affair with a younger Kurdish man six months before the murder. On the 8th of January 2009, he pleaded guilty to a murder at Oxford Crown Court, admitting killing Sugra with two kitchen knives and a chapati pan while their children were sleeping upstairs at the family home in Mould Crescent, and was sentenced to life imprisonment, being told he would serve a minimum of 13 years and 10 months in jail before becoming eligible for parole. However, Presiding Mr Justice Julian Hall ordered the case be returned to court to review the sentence following new information received under the so-called slip rule, which allows courts to change or review a sentence within 56 days of the original decision if new evidence can be presented. Sentencing in January at his trial at Oxford Crown Court heard that following the murder, Rashid tried to clean up the blood from the house before hiding the body under a duvet behind a sofa. He dropped his children off at his father's house the following morning before walking into Banbury Police Station and confessing to the crime. But on Friday, February the 27th, Rashid was given an extra two years on his minimum tariff, making 15 years two months in total, after the judge was told that the couple's children, then aged six and four, had told their carers they had seen and tried to protect their mother during the attack. Rashid had previously claimed he had protected his children from the act, but a probation worker wrote to the judge with evidence from the children's foster carers, saying that on the evening of the murder, the children had told their carers they had heard a noise and gone downstairs. They said the six-year-old son had tried to protect his mother and got blood on his clothes. 
Rashid's four-year-old daughter referred to her brother as having blood on his tummy because he tried to hug their mum. Now, police had found blood-stained clothes belonging to the boy in the house after the murder, which Rashid explained away by telling officers he had gone upstairs and hugged his son after killing his wife, not realising he was blood-stained. Judge Hall said he didn't believe that a man who had wielded a knife against his wife would not realise that he was bloodstained, and told him, In the original evidence in original sentencing, it was stated that the children were both upstairs at the time of the killing. I find as a fact and beyond doubt that what your daughter said was true. I find as fact that the children were downstairs at some point during the attack on your wife. I am certain that I sentenced on a false basis. Detective Chief Inspector Colin Seaton, who had led the investigation, said following the fresh hearing, The judge has come to the decision that he previously sentenced under incorrect circumstances and that Rashid deliberately gave false information and misled the court. This was a ferocious and brutal attack and the extra time on the minimum sentence that he must spend in prison reflects the additional information placed before the judge and the trauma suffered by others as a result of his actions. Quite a rare occurrence of horror striking twice, so closely to one another, yet completely unconnected. The actions of Michael Kelly really do just defy belief, don't they? I know you can love a person so much that they can become your world, that that person can get underneath your skin, and surely, to a degree, they should never be far away from your waking thoughts, but in a healthy, happy way. You shouldn't be unhealthily obsessed with a person. You should just feel that they complete you by who they are. But when you're wanting to spend every second with them, it goes beyond a healthy love that does. It begins to dip into wanting to control that person due to your own inadequacies and insecurities. And like most level-headed people, if you do this and a relationship falters because of how you are, you should then accept it, then introspect and learn from it. But some people just can't do that, can they? They react like a petulant child would, but sometimes they commit almost indescribable horror and Kelly is no exception. How terrifying the final moments of Sally and Martin must have been, you can't fully imagine really. But to ensure that they were, Kelly added for no clear reason except to instill that final semblance of fear in his victims, a horrific-looking mask. There is no other reason for him doing so. I believe the actions for his endgame would have included possible suicide. For it seems to have been a reactionary crime. There's no alibi or escape route thought out here. And Kelly must have known that he would be the prime suspect. Certainly the top person of interest anyway. And also that he would be facing life imprisonment with a substantial minimum tariff. Perhaps even a whole life order as a result. Then, to write letters and diary entries largely dedicated to the woman you've killed from your prison cell still showing that level of obsession, yet, however it's written, it largely smacks of pity for himself, for he never once mentions apologising to Sally's family, thinking that his guilty plea will just suffice. 
his actions accomplished nothing whatsoever, leaving two lives snuffed out, his own liberty for quite possibly the remainder of his life taken away, and so many people left with their lives destroyed. Is that really a job well done, as his Facebook status professed? I'd say it certainly wasn't, with so many lives irreparably damaged due to his actions. What do you think? I would love, as always, hearing any thoughts and feedback you may have on the episode A Job Well Done, which you can do so in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or if you want to, through any of the show's other social media links, I'm always happy to have a gas wherever you wish to. As it's the first one back of this year, and as I haven't for a while, I am now, and always, curating listener tales for the show, so perhaps if there's a case you think would be a good fit for the enthusiast, perhaps one that's always struck with you, perhaps taking place somewhere you're familiar with, perhaps it's even rippled across you in some way, then you can get in touch with me through any of the show's social media channels to suggest it. I'm very approachable, and you'll never find me ungrateful for it either. It may even already be one of my list, who knows? Or perhaps it's one that the budding writer and researcher in you would like to cover yourselves and pass over for inclusion here, which you get full credit on the show for. I can hear another tale calling me right now, so it's time for me to wrap up and shut up. I thank you once again for joining me in the peaks today, who has not stirred one bit throughout the episode, I must say. I had to even look carefully to make sure he was still breathing. But he is, rest assured. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.